This episode of The Witch Wave is brought to you by That Witch Life Podcast. They are holding So Mote That Con, a virtual conference on living as a witch in today's world, on October 16th and 17th. Speakers include Madame Pamita, Pamela Chen, and Courtney Weber, and there's a special Q&A session with Amy Cesari of The Coloring Book of Shadows. Workshops range from fairies to discovering your past lives to the goddess Hecate, plus so much more, and you can join from anywhere in the world. Register today at thatwitchlife.com. And while you're at it, check out That Witch Life, a hilarious and informative podcast hosted by three lifelong best friends exploring witchcraft, magical mishaps, and spooky pop culture with new episodes every Monday, available on all podcast platforms. Today's episode is brought to you by Witch Digital. If you're a witchy small business owner, listen up. Are you tired of feeling like the only digital marketing help out there is some ultra-modern agency filled with mansplainers? Do you wish there was a digital marketing agency made by and for people like you? Then let me introduce you to Witch Digital, a team of marketing witches based in Virginia and New York City. Whether it's branding, developing a new website, or helping you make sense of social media, the Witch Team has helped more than 25 small businesses in the past year alone achieve their goals. If you've been putting off hiring someone to help you with your digital marketing efforts, consider this your sign. It's time to take the first step by reaching out to the team at Witch Digital. Head over to witchdigital.com, and witch is spelled V-V-I-T-C-H, and mention The Witch Wave to save 10% off all their services through the end of 2021. That's witchdigital.com, V-V-I-T-C-H digital.com. Today's episode is brought to you by Temperance Home and Bar. If you're looking for a fun and safe way to spend the Samhain season, shop online at Temperance Home and Bar by Floodwitch. There you'll find cocktail rituals and sigil kits geared toward Halloween. Visit www.floodwitch.com or find it on Etsy and Instagram at Temperance Home Bar. And if you use code WITCHWAVE, you'll get 10% off. For magical, radical self-care with a little sanse in it, it's Temperance Home and Bar by Floodwitch. The world is filled with bewitching people, and you might be one too. Welcome to the podcast where art is magic, magic is real, and reality is stranger than dreams. I'm Pam Grossman, and this is The Witch Wave. Hello and welcome to the Witch Wave. 
tis the season, my friends. I am so feeling these October vibes. And here in New York, there's even started to be a bit of a chill in the air. The best. And if you're anything like me, you are probably starting to watch even more witchly films and shows than usual, if that's even possible, to get you in the right macabre, magical mood. So I gotta say, you are in for such a treat and a trick with today's episode, where I get to speak with Lights, Camera, Witchcraft author Heather Green, all about the history of witches on screen. As Heather reminds us, it's not only fun to watch witch movies and TV shows, it's fascinating. Because even though the witch shifts shape and tone and subtext over time, and rises and falls and resurrects again in popularity, she never goes away entirely. As Carl Jung wrote, quote, Whoever speaks in primordial images speaks with a thousand voices. He enthralls and overpowers, while at the same time he lifts the idea he is seeking to express out of the occasional and the transitory into the realm of the ever-enduring." As far as I'm concerned, the witch is most effectively discussed as an eternal, primordial, or to use Jung's other famous term, archetypal figure. She or he or they taps into our primal desires and shames and horrors and hopes. The witch represents the subversive energy of the other, of the ones who stand counter to social and cultural propriety and control. And no matter what genre we're examining, whether fantasy or creep show or sitcom or teen romance, the witch figure or figures in these stories bring out of the shadows messages about us, about who we are, about what we want and what we fear, and how, spoiler alert, That's often the same thing. Tracking the witch's cultural evolution also reveals a larger narrative that shows how attitudes about power and gender are constantly in flux, as you'll hear. And our conversation will also, no doubt, have you adding even more witch films and shows to your Halloween viewing queue. And maybe inspire you to revisit some bewitching old favorites. But before we get to that, first let's check and see what's come through on The Witch Wire. Who is it? Witches! Ginny writes, My Witch Wire question sadly comes from a place of grief. Yesterday, I lost my beloved, scaly, western hognose snake, Leo. 
Western or plains hognose snakes are best described as the pugs of the snake world due to their upturned noses that are used for burrowing and their cool dragon-like scales covering their body. Hognoses are also masters of drama and trickery and will hiss and puff up like a cobra to ward off predators or if they are extra cranky in the morning and have the ability to turn over and play dead when feeling threatened. I got Leo during one of the toughest transition periods of my life, which included moving on my own from New York City to Chicago, where Leo accompanied me and provided peace, love, comfort, silliness, and even aided me in the development of my magical practices. My question is, what rituals can you prescribe for honoring and remembering the passing of our magical animal companions and familiars. I am missing him dearly and would love to hear any practices or resources you would like to share regarding working closely with our deceased animal friends. Oh, Jenny, my heart breaks for you. I know too well what it is like to lose a beloved familiar. Our animals are part of our families And we see them and connect with them every single day. So when they are gone, the loss is so palpable and painful. And I'm just so sorry that Leo is gone here from the material world. I find your question interesting, though, because I know there are many books and witches who specialize in animal communication and connection. But I got to be honest. My instinct is to guide you in the way that I have honored my own deceased familiars, which is to honor them as I would any human family member. We lost our two kitties, Albie and Remy, within the same year, Albie over Thanksgiving of 2019 and Remy in September of 2020. And going through a pandemic and grieving these losses was no picnic, let me tell you. But I've stayed connected to them in the same way that I do my ancestors. A primary part of that work is engaging with my altar. I had Albie and Remy's ashes on my altar for many months, and now they're on a shelf right next to my altar, And I make sure to keep them dusted and light candles for them or put out offerings for them when I feel called to. And I talk to them and thank them and sometimes ask them for guidance. I also honor each of them on the anniversaries of their death. And I incorporate rituals for them during Samhain, which is coming right up, as you know, over Halloween and which is a time to not only watch scary witchy movies and gorge on candy, but also to connect with our dearly departed. So that would be my advice for you. If you haven't already, I recommend setting up an altar for Leo or adding him somehow to your current altar. If you don't have his remains, that's totally fine. You can just use a photograph or a drawing of him or any way that you can visually represent him. 
And you may also want to add other magical symbols of snakes. As I'm sure you know, snakes represent the infinite, the eternal, that beautiful cycle of death and rebirth, of shedding skin and renewing oneself over and over again. So Leo has shed his corporeal skin, but he is now wearing spiritual skin. So I hope you find some comfort in that too. There are so many deities and magical symbols and offerings that have to do with snake magic, so you may want to lean deeper into that right now. But whatever you decide, the important thing is that you allow yourself to spend time at the altar grieving him and expressing gratitude for him and talking with him and keeping connected to his spirit. And I feel compelled to add one other thing. Whenever you're ready or the opportunity presents itself in a way that feels meaningful to you, I highly encourage you to be open to love from and for another familiar. I asked Albie and Remy to guide us to new kitties whenever the time was right. And now we have two new furry familiars, Monday and birthday, who we love and adore deeply, even as we're still grieving our first two. The heart is infinitely expansive, and I am certain that you will find room in yours to let even more love slither inside. R.I.P. and blessed be Leo. And lots and lots and lots of love to you, Ginny. Now, on to my guest. Heather Green is the author of Lights, Camera, Witchcraft, a critical history of witches in American film and television. This is an updated version of her 2018 book, Bell, Book, and Camera, with brand new chapters and loads more on-screen witches and insights. Heather is a freelance editor, writer, and journalist who has specialized in witchcraft, paganism, and alternative religions and other occult topics for over 30 years. She is the former managing editor of the pagan news journal The Wild Hunt, and her work has been published at such places as The Washington Post, Religion News Service, Pathios.com, and Turner Classic Movies. She is also an acquisitions consultant with Llewellyn Worldwide. Heather has a BA in Film Studies and French from the Wesleyan University in Connecticut and a Master's in Film Studies from Emory University. Heather joined me from her home in Atlanta via Zoom. Heather Green, welcome to The Witch Wave. Thank you very much. I'm very happy to be here. I am so happy that you're here. And I have to confess, I've been looking forward to this conversation with you for such a long time because <laughs> I am a huge fan of the prior iteration of the book that we're about to talk about. This is your new book, Lights, Camera, Witchcraft, A Critical History of Witches in American Film and Television which actually is kind of, what would you call it, a rebirth or an extension of the previous iteration, Bell, Book, and Camera? 
I think I like the word rebirth that you use there. It's extended. So it's a a new version. It has lots of new information in it and it has a lot of more detail. So I think a rebirth is a good word. I love that. So why don't we start there, Heather? Because I loved Bell Book and Camera so much. It was, I confess, really helpful for me in a lot of my research between my book and different articles that I've written and so on. And so I'm so grateful that it exists. But how did Bell Book and Camera and now this new version, Lights, Camera, Witchcraft, come to be? What was the motivation behind both versions of the book? That's a really great question that has, of course, a um, a nice little backstory. I was going to write this book or a version of this or explore the topic, let's say, back in the late 90s when witchcraft was really showing its face on screen. You remember the craft and Sabrina and all that stuff was going on. It was real popular and I saw a connection. I was in film school at the time. And I had been studying various occult topics, uh, Wicca, Tarot, astrology, et cetera. So at the time, you know, I saw a coming together of my two disciplines, my two interests. And so I was fascinated by it, but, you know, life gets in the way, as they say, and mm-hmm. I wound up not doing it at that point and going on to do some other things. But then again, when witchcraft started to show up again regularly in television in particular and film by 2010, 2013, it just, the urge to do this study became fierce again with me. And so I said, I've got to do this. And at this point, I'm an independent scholar, so I was no longer in school. So I said, I'm going to do it anyway. And so after a lot of movie watching, a lot of television watching, (laughs) um, research reading, and all of that good stuff, here is the result of my study. So spectacular. When I was revisiting the book, I was thinking, you know, the word I want to call this book is exhaustive because it is such a thorough collection of pretty much every American television show and film that has witches in it. And then I thought to myself, exhaustive is such a shitty word because it sounds (laughs) so negative. And then I was like, you know what this book is? It's exhilarating. So uh, for someone like me, and I imagine lots of listeners who love pop a culture and anything having to do with witches on screen, it really is kind of I think the go-to book, which covers pretty much every iteration of the screen witch. So let me ask you, how did you go about tackling this topic? I imagine you just watched tons and tons of stuff. Is that right? It is. And it really, the question started with how does the witch influence practitioners that actually practice witchcraft today? So that was sort of the beginning question for the book more recently, rather than back when I was noticing it back in the 90s. I said, look at this. We're very interested in these movies, but yet they're negative depictions sometimes too. So that sort of started the ball rolling. And I just started to look at the different types of witches and say, well, why does a witch look like this in this period of time? And why does a witch look like this in this period of time? And with my background in film, my background in history uh, in particular, I knew that there was more to it. I knew that something was there that informed the representation of the witch and witchcraft and magic that made it change throughout time. And so I started this process. Now, I had already done a similar type of study on on Disney animation back in the 90s. So the process was already set in my mind. The question was, how do you apply it 
to the, like you said, exhaustive <laughs> amount of witch films. Yes. And what is a witch film? I mean, so I had to define what a witch film was. I had to define the types of witches to categorize them. How is this going to look so I could encapsulate it and present it in a readable form to people who are not familiar with the topic? That was the beginning. And it sort of was an organic process because I had to start before I could really see that picture. And then it sort of found its own way over time. And yes, I I had to watch a lot of movies. (laughs) Which and sounds, a lot of shows. sounds dreamy, <laughs> honestly, but I also know that once you start kind of making your passion your work, I mean, it definitely feels like work in moments too, right? It does. It was very enjoyable. There were some movies, I have to be honest, where I said, I have no idea why I'm watching this. There were some <laughs> bad ones. But as my old film professor once said, to know what good is, you have to watch bad. So um, yep. I stuck it out. <laughs> good for you. But um, yes, I did. I watched as much as I could. Of course, you know, people will say to me, well, you left this out. Well, there's either a reason I left it out or there's just so many. I mean, of the witch course. is so pervasive in our culture. So there's only so much I could have done without having the book come out 50 years from now, you know? Of course. But yes, it was it was exhaustive. It was exhilarating. Those are great words. The questions I put out there as questions, and I let the witch, so to speak, lead the way. I got the answers from the movies and the text. I didn't put my own resolutions and ideas on them. I let them lead me. And this is what came out. Well, it's led you to such rich and magical places. I'm so interested in that taxonomy of the witch because I I know firsthand how challenging it is to define what a witch is and to figure out what goes under that kind of rubric. You even write in the introduction, you say something to the effect of like, well, there are fairies and trolls and magical nannies and fairy godmothers and sorceresses, and and they're not all necessarily, I was going to say worthy, but maybe appropriate is a better word, to be put in a witch film and television book. And I was thinking, you know, for example, like Mary Poppins, she's somebody that I have written about under the kind of rubric of which, but I totally see an argument for maybe why she doesn't quite fit in there. So how did you decide what was a witch for the context of this book? That's a great example is Mary Poppins. And so I'll I'll capitalize on that. Basically, the movie itself had to define the character as a witch. That's the simplest way to put it. Mm -hmm. At some point, the magical character had to be labeled a witch. Um, So I sort of let the movies handle that because there's so much crossover. And if you get into the crossover, you start looking at Mary Poppins. If you start looking at other magical creatures, fairies, et cetera, you could have a a series of books because there's so many magical creatures out there. Okay. So Mary Poppins really is never called a witch that I can recall. It it also doesn't qualify for several other reasons, but a character like that is a magical nanny, which is very much akin to the good witch. Mm. Um, and that's a different book. The Magical Nanny is a very unique and interesting character in and of herself. So the movie has to, again, define the character as a witch specifically, as specifically as possible. Of course, you know, there's gray areas and there always will be gray areas. Maleficent is another gray area. So I chose to add her for a number of reasons. She is actually considered a fairy, a bad yes. fairy and not a, necessarily a witch, But because of the definitions of Disney's lore and Disney's own mythology, she is considered a witch character. So that's why she was included, whereas Mary Poppins is not. 
there's some cases where I had to make a call, but there's gray areas, certainly. And that's always going to happen with classification and especially with the witch because the witch (laughs) is a shapeshifter. She's so damn slippery, right? She is. And that's what I say at the end of my book. She's going to (laughs) change. Yep. Yep. She sure will. And we should say she is also a he and a they and, Mm -hmm. and everything in between. So let's kind of start at the beginning. What is the first witch on screen that you encountered? The earliest witch, I should say. It's hard to really pinpoint that because a lot of those silent films are lost. Mm. So one of the first witches that I could find was 1908, and the movie is called The Witch. And it actually is a very short, silent encapsulation of Ivanhoe. It's not called that, but it's based on that. So you have what you have is a an accused woman, which is one of the labels I use for witches. It is a woman who is labeled a witch, accused of witch, going to be burned as a witch. That is what you have in, in this film. So that's one of the first depictions of a witch, 1908. Shortly after that, 1910, you have the fantasy film, The Wonderful Wizard of Oz, which was actually the very first filmic version of Baum's famous story. So you have those these early retellings of classical literature or popular literature in the case of Baum. And that's what you're seeing is for witches in the early days. I am smiling for two reasons right now. The first is that I love talking about The Wizard of Oz and I cannot wait to dive in. But the second is that you pronounce his name Baum And that is because, like me, you are from New Jersey originally. And when I was recording the audio book for my book, they made me go back and say bomb and get rid of my Jersey accent. So, yeah, we will call him Baum for this conversation. God damn it. I've always called him Baum. So that's so funny. I never put that together, but okay. (laughs) I've, I've had to train myself to say bomb. So, yeah, yeah, we'll see what comes out. But anyhow... I learned from your book that The Wizard of Oz, the big MGM film from 1939, was not the first Wizard of Oz movie. And I was so pleased and it kind of sent me down this rabbit hole in my own research of, you know, the the original theatrical version, you know, that Baum or Baum, you know, obviously wrote the children's book in 1900, but also that there was a, a a stage version that was produced as well. It's had so many different iterations. And and I've been diving a lot more deeply into The Wizard of Oz myself for some different projects. So I would love to hear you talk about that film, um, specifically the 1939 film and why you think it so captured the collective imagination. The early ones, The Wonderful Wizard of Oz, His Majesty the Scarecrow, and several other films that remain in the silent era, some of them were attempts by Baum to profit and have success off of the book, just like the play itself. The play was moderately successful. The films were not so successful. The Wonderful Wizard of Oz in 1910 was not done by him. He had sold the rights because he was going bankrupt, essentially, and he needed the money. He did not do the wonderful Wizard of Oz, but he was still alive at the time, but he was unsuccessful with those other films. And several other iterations of the Wizard of Oz, which came out in the 20s, uh, were also not successful. So by 1939, by the late 1930s, I should say, the Wizard of Oz story, the property, was considered box office poison. It had not done 
well at all. Mm. Um, And it was pretty shocking that MGM decided to pick this up as a way of countering or competing with Disney's Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. That's really what was going on. The success of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs set off a frenzy in the film industry looking for something that could compete and capture the same audience and success that Disney had seen. So MGM went with The Wizard of Oz. Unfortunately, at the time, it did not do as well as Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. It was moderately successful. People found it to be too frightening for children and too silly for adults, which you hear about later movies like Hocus Pocus and the Witches. I mean, that's a common that's common among some of these fantasy, fantasy witch films. So The Wizard of Oz had that kind of same cachet. It was not well received. It did receive an Academy Award. The music was well adored. There were things that people liked about it, but it was not as successful as people now see it. Okay. Mm, That's mm. a myth. So why did it become successful? Why did it eventually find its place in history, the history that it has? Why have the witches become the two of the most iconic, popular, iconic, yes, witches influencing us in so many ways? It's escaping my head right now, but I think sometime in the 50s, the there was an agreement with television. Now, television is born. Agreement with television, I believe it was CBS at first, to play the movie around Halloween every year. Mm. Okay? They started to do it as an annual event. They're going to play this movie because it has a witch in it. So we're going to play it around Halloween. Perfect. So this happened year after year after year with almost without fail, I think 30 some odd years, CBS or another network played the movie. So it became an American tradition, so to speak, for the holiday. Mm. Now, there may have been a few years where it wasn't played around Halloween and I have to go back to my notes to look, but it doesn't matter because it was played annually. That's the key. It was repeated on television. So it's really television that took that classic piece of cinema that had been languishing to to a degree and made it an icon, made it an American tradition, a holiday tradition, and then, of course, an iconic American film piece. And today, there's no question. The number of films, the number of references, the influence is unmistakable. Mm. And it's it's truly one of my favorite films. And I know a lot of people feel that way. And it's incredible to think how it was such a long road before it got to the legendary status that it's achieved now. It's pretty inspirational if you think about it. Absolutely. And I mean, it's funny to think that it was banned back in 1939, 1940. It was banned in some countries because the witch was too frightening. But it's such a beautiful piece of filmmaking, and it is really well done. And I'm so glad it reached its point. Plus, I just like you. It's my. I always say it's my favorite film. It's my inspiration. <laughs> <laughs> On that note, we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back. 2,000 years ago, in labyrinthine underground temples across the Roman Empire, the first beeswax candles were burned in secret rituals to the god Mithras. Now you can experience some of this mystery for yourself with Mithras candles, my favorite. Handmade from the purest East Coast golden cappings beeswax with that natural, subtle, honey and floral scent, Mithras candles are the perfect illumination for the mysteries of your life. 
Mithras candles come in natural gold and rich black varieties. You can also get them in their signature, stunning, hand-dripped style, or you can choose their smooth and rustic version. They also have wide pillars for sale if you're feeling extra expansive with your magic. And very exciting, they now have new long sleeve black t-shirts for sale. And I am so excited to get mine because I love a long sleeve shirt and this one is gorgeous. So go on ahead to MithrasCandle.com. That's M as in magic, I-T-H-R-A-S candle.com and use offer code WITCH for 13% off your first order. That's MithrasCandle.com and offer code WITCH gets you 13% off your first order. Thank you, Mithras. I'm a big fan of therapy and have seen firsthand how much talking to a professional has helped me manage my own anxiety and stress and trauma so that I can live the fullest life I possibly can. I've also seen how it's changed the lives of so many people that I care about for the better as well. And that's why I am encouraging you to check out BetterHelp which is an online counseling service that can provide you with your own licensed professional counselor to talk to via video or phone sessions. And it doesn't have to be that heavy of a topic. Maybe you just need a place to be heard and have an outside perspective on your everyday struggles with your job or your relationships. We all have so much that we're carrying with us these days between our personal issues and, need I say, global issues, and it's just a lot. And I'm telling you, talking it all through with someone who is trained and objective and not a friend or family member is such a gift because their job Their actual job is to listen to you and help you work through your feelings about it all. So please consider reaching out to the folks at BetterHelp, and they'll connect you with a counselor who you can start chatting with in under 24 hours. And they've been doing remote sessions since before it became the norm, so they've built a platform that's accessible, convenient, and secure. Also know that BetterHelp offers financial aid to those who qualify, and they make it really easy to switch counselors so you can find one that you truly click with. Best of all, Witchwave listeners get 10% off your first month of counseling by going to betterhelp.com witchwave. That's betterhelp.com slash witchwave. Please take care of your mental well-being. It is so necessary, and there is absolutely support out there for you. Do what over a million people have done already, and head on over to betterhelp.com witchwave, find a great counselor to talk to, and know that I am here rooting for you. Feel well, and take good care with BetterHelp. Welcome back to The Witch Wave. Today I'm speaking with Heather Green. So Heather, we were just talking about The Wizard of Oz, iconic, legendary, amazing witch film. And I think, for me at least, one of the reasons that it's reached that status is because it gives us this incredible 
binary of witches, of powerful women. You know, you have, of course, the Wicked Witch of the West, and you also have Glinda. And to my mind, it's one of the earliest times that really showed that a witch could be not just evil, but it could also be good and potentially even feminist if we dive especially into Baum's, you know, history with his suffragist mother-in-law, Matilda Jocelyn Gage, and, and all of that good stuff. So I was wondering, in terms of the witch archetype, in your own research, do you think that tracks? Do you think that this is one of the earliest depictions of both a positive and a negative witch in the same story? That's a hard question because there's a lot of silent films that did depict fantasy witches that were not bad. In in the early silent era, witches were not necessarily bad or good. Mm. There was this sort of generic existence, an amoral existence where witches could help you or they might be evil. So the presence of a good witch is not necessarily unusual. Witches in these silent films. And and I'm thinking of Mysteries of Myra, for example, the witch in that film was not bad at all. She helped the heroine. Mm -hmm. She was very much filling the role of the good witch, although she wasn't necessarily the fairy and in her visuals, as well as her presentation, she wasn't the pure angelic like witch that we find in Glinda. She was a woodland witch. It was much more like the, the classic crone, but she was good. So the good witch doesn't necessarily find its first home in The Wizard of Oz. And the evil witch doesn't either. There were silent films with evil witches. But what we have in this film for the first time is this extreme binary. Mm -hmm. That's what's very unique about this film. And now we see it in other films prior to this, but not in relation to two witches, not in relation to magic. So here we see magic for good and magic for bad. And yes, it did exist in The Wonderful Wizard of Oz, the 1910 film. You had Glinda. You had the Wicked Witch. But in that case, what's interesting in the 1910 film, they didn't call Glinda a witch. They called her Glinda the Good and left it at that. She looked like a fairy mm-hmm. for the most part. Mm-hmm. So you wind up with this sort of, is she a witch, is she not? Whereas in this case, Glinda is a witch. And we have that wonderful exchange about that between her and Dorothy, that witches can be pretty. However, what we have here is this binary. What we have in The Wicked Witch is the first time witchcraft has that level of extreme horror. And I use that word sincerely. And we have this other binary extreme opposite of Glinda. And what I talk about in my film, what in my film, in my book, excuse me, is that the extremes are paralleled to a almost like a Christian versus hell type of polarity. Like a, a, a heaven versus hell, you mean? Heaven versus hell, excuse me. The polarity of that. That's how extreme the binary is in this film, which coincides with Hollywood at the time, which we don't have to get into, but you can read that all in my book. Yes, and you should. <laughs> <laughs> That's the unusual part. It's not the presence of the good witch or the presence of such an evil witch, or even together, because you do see it in other films. It's the condensed extreme of it. It's the pressure of it as we watch the film that's beautifully done in Technicolor that really hits you. Absolutely. I love how you write about the Wicked Witch. Uh, You have this great quote. You write, she is the monstrous feminine, not because of an extenuated display of sexuality, 
or attention to beauty, but rather because of an internal power and the willingness to use it to disrupt the conventional. I love that. And I think that's also why so many of us love her so much, because definitely I was afraid of her when I was a kid, but now it's it's clear she's the best part of that movie, right? She's just having a ball. <laughs> <laughs> or trying to anyway. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes. And, and, and that's the premise of a lot. I touch on that throughout the book. And she's one example of how we as witches or women or viewers, whoever you are, can connect with these evil characters and find a sympathy there. They find some inspiration there. And the witch for me, the wicked witch for me was that. You see this woman who's evil. The film is telling you she's evil. But yet at the same time, she has internal power. She is wielding that power without limitation, with pride Mm -hmm. and doing her thing free of all types of conventions. So she's doing that thing. And if you look at that compared to Glinda, and I believe this is why Glinda is less popular than the Wicked Witch of the West, generally speaking, Glinda's power is only achieved through her wand, which is given to her. And we see this play out again in Oz the Great and Powerful even more so. Mm is that the wand was given to Glinda. Her power is not necessarily internal. She needs the wand to do magic. Whereas the Wicked Witch of the West, it comes from in her body. Ooh, see, I did not pick up on that. That is fascinating. Yeah, you'll see that if you watch the Oz and the Great and Powerful, it's, that's actually a point that they bring out, which is, like I said, it's, it's more pronounced in that film, but it actually is slightly, it plays out in the earlier film as well. That's so interesting because getting back to your earlier point about Christianity and the power of heaven versus the power of hell, this is a bit of a tangent, but I think it's a relevant one. My father-in-law is an Episcopal priest, and he and I actually have some really interesting conversations around what miracles are versus what magic is. And for him, he says miracles come from God, whereas magic like comes from somewhere else. And so I think to your point, you know, Glinda the Good, her magic comes from somewhere else. This wand, you know, this external thing where the Wicked Witch, she's inherently magical. And that's what makes her dangerous because the power comes from her, right? Right, exactly. And if you look at the visuals there, you have Glinda who arrives in Munchkin land from on high, from a bubble, from the clouds. Mm-hmm. And she is pink and she is fluffy and she is looks like a ballerina or a fairy or whatever you want to say. Whereas the Wicked Witch of the West, she arrives through a cloud of orange smoke from the ground. Yes. So you see the visuals play that out as well. Yes. It's also like dichotomies of the Apollonian versus the Dionysian or, you know, the celestial versus the thonic. Ah, it's so, so good. Okay. Heather, I promised myself we wouldn't only talk about the Wizard of Oz. So (laughs) (laughs) we're going to have to have you come back and just like dork out about just that film with me. Please, let's do that. Absolutely. I'm there. Awesome. But I want to move us along to another time period of film and television that I am such a sucker for. I know I'm collapsing way too many time periods, but like between the 50s and the 70s is this version of like this more glamorous witch. And she's, you know, sometimes kind of vampy or sometimes, you know, more of like a Hollywood starlet, like 
Jillian Holleroyd in Bell, Book, and Candle. I'm thinking about Samantha in Bewitched. I'm even thinking about some of the witches in Rosemary's Baby. I mean, I'm painting with a very broad brush, but it seems to me like the witch kind of gets cool around then, right? Well, I think the witch in, we're going to leave Rosemary's Baby out of that because that's a totally different period. But when you're looking at Jillian Holleroyd and you're looking at the 50s, the 40s, witches in these periods were very much part of the golden era of Hollywood and the studio system. And so a lot of the female characters, witch or not witch, were glamorized and were put in that framework. So of course you're going to see the witch be like, because they're all like that. There was no reality. You didn't have that, that gritty tone that you wind up in in mainstream films that you have later. Okay. In the seventies, when we start to get the independent films and and Hollywood opens up. So during this period, yes, you're going to see the glamour, especially prior to the changing uh, industry. So you have that, you see that a little bit with Samantha because she's trying to play that role. Samantha is trying to play the role of the 1950s housewife. She's not doing a very good job of it because of her (laughs) witchcraft, but she's trying really hard. So we'll give her that. So she pulls from that glamour. She's trying. And then of course, the ones like Jillian Holleroyd and Jennifer from I Married a Witch and all of these other things, they were created in the studio system. So the women and the female characters of that era, those very much had that Hollywood glam. And whether they were vamp, whether they were not, whether they were fantasy, they all had that sort of Hollywood glam that I particularly am fascinated with. But that was the time. That was the era. I love it so much. And for me, I love it just because, I mean, what can I say? I love fashion. I love beautiful gowns. I also love that the witch becomes, if not the protagonist, at least in a lot of these cases, like a more central driver of the plot, as opposed to being this more sidelined character or even just a villain. Like she really is the fulcrum upon which a lot of the plot, you know, kind of, well, I was going to say rotates because I don't know physics, but whatever fulcrums do. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, she does take a central role in some of these films that we're talking about as a way of discussing, as an allegory to discussing the role of women at the time and other types of concerns. Bell Book and Candle, I Married a Witch in the 40s, Weird Woman. And this is a period of time there wasn't a horror film, so you didn't have a whole lot of horror witches, but a lot of these are just central to, they. it's kind of taking a witch story and making it fit with the popular genres of the time. Mm. So you get a few witches in there. There aren't that many, but you get a few witches in there that are central. And it's more centered around what would be called women's issues than it would be. And I put quotes, you know, finger quotes around that women's issues, because that's a whole nother conversation, but that's sort of what's going on here. And the witch does play a role in in the what if, what if she was magical? It's kind of like bewitched. What if there was a witch that was magical? What if a witch was playing a role of a housewife? You know, Mm. so you get these what ifs going on. It's, it's really nice. It's a different way to have a witch film. And that period is very specific. Definitely. I'm also thinking about kind of what was going on in society at the time. I mean, you have second wave feminism that's starting to bubble up in the 60s and and certainly in the 70s. And I remember my dear friend Kristen Soleil, who wrote so many amazing witch books, but in her book, Witches, Sluts, Feminists, she kind of reminds the reader that when Bewitched was being written, this is the time of like, Betty Friedan and the feminine mystique. And, you know, this stuff was in the ether. So I think also kind of depicting women grappling with power and all of like 
the fears and the fantasies that come with that kind of seeps its way into visual culture too. So every single one of these witch films can be looked at in terms of gender politics of the time. And that's one of the premises and the threads that runs through my book. And if we're looking specifically at Bewitched, which is a great example of that and a very clear example, it was made at sort of that period in between the old ways, let's call them, and the new ways. It was a film that really examined the woman's role in the home. And that's when I said earlier about her trying to be in a Leave it to Beaver show in an earlier 1950s setting and playing the perfect 1950s housewife that you would see in those earlier television shows. She's trying to do that, but she can't because of her witchcraft. And that is the key point here. That's the political nuance that this show had. It was showing a woman who had this internal power. She was trying to repress that internal power, but she was not able to. And so that is a very different expression and representation of the witch, an expression of witchcraft that had not yet been seen. Because in the past, Jillian, for example, loses her power. Films always promoted the loss of power for witches. Here you have a woman who realizes her witchcraft is part of who she is. She cannot get rid of it no matter how hard she tries. Yeah. And so Bewitched is really of its time, definitely. And there are readings that would say otherwise. A lot of feminists don't see that. They see it more as a text that try to repress women. Mm -hmm. But then there are the opposite readings as well that say, no, this is a woman who's grappling with the subject of her times, the issues of her times. She's so much more than society wants her to be. And so there's that tension there. And, And I think it's one of the reasons why it is such a legendary show, because whether people are conscious of it or not, I think it really taps into the tension that a lot of people feel, but particularly women of that time period. You know, it's like they're supposed to be in this one contained box, and yet they also have this desire and this fear that they're so much more than that. And I just think it's really, really No, I was going to say it is. And it shows that this woman who is grappling with her own power, how to use it, how to bring her own world, her witchcraft world, into this world that she's trying to fit into. It reflects not only the feminist movement of the time, but the discussions around racial politics, interfaith, interreligious, marriage. There's a lot going on in this text and Mm. Bewitched. And it lasted until 1972. It was extremely popular. So there was something that really spoke to audiences at the time. Oh, my goodness. I've never thought of Bewitched as showing an interfaith marriage, but you're totally right. That's exactly what it is. I love it. On that note, we're going to take another quick break and we'll be right back. This episode of The Witch Wave is brought to you by Heart of Service, a seven-week online intuitive tarot immersion for anyone who desires to deepen or shift into soul-guided, spirit-led service, taught by tarot expert and prior Witch Wave guest, Lindsay Mack. Enrollment for Heart of Service is open now, and the course runs from October 8th to November 19th. To sign up or learn more, visit lindsaymack.com, that's L-I-N-D-S-A-Y-M-A-C-K dot com, and be sure to use code WITCH for 10% off your tuition. 
In modern day witchcraft, more and more people are exploring how the cannabis plant can be incorporated into their spiritual practices. Green Moon Apothecary offers self-care, mysticism, and joy with a cannabis-infused twist in a subscription box that is delivered to you for each Sabbat of the Pagan Wheel of the Year. Each box from Green Moon Apothecary is themed around the Sabbats and includes special curated items to assist with ritual and spell work, manifestation, divination, wellness, and self-care. The smokable part of cannabis is female, and Green Moon Apothecary believes that when you grow the plant, you must elevate the feminine in order to be successful. That's exactly what Green Moon Apothecary wants to do, to empower people and celebrate green witchcraft and the spirit of this magical cannabis plant. The season of the witch is here, and the veil between worlds is the thinnest. So indulge in enchantment and welcome the darker half of the wheel by subscribing to a Green Moon box or explore their other many magical products over at www.greenmoon.ca. And use the code WITCHWAVE for 10% off your first order. Some restrictions do apply. Green Moon Apothecary's Samhain box deadline is October 18th to guarantee shipment, so be sure to order that soon. And make sure to follow the Witches of Green Moon on Instagram at green.moon.apothecary. Please note Green Moon ships to USA and Canada only, and the 10% off discount does not include half or full wheel subscriptions, as these are already discounted. And of course, you must be of age in your state, province, or territory. So head on over to greenmoon.ca and enjoy Green Moon Apothecary's cannabis concoctions. Would you like even more Witch Wave? Then come join us on Patreon, where you'll get bi-weekly bonus Witch Wave Plus episodes, ad-free Witch Wave episodes, and detailed show notes for all. Rewards also include magical merch and giveaways, early heads up about my workshops before they sell out, and all backers get access to our exclusive digital coven, where I lead monthly rituals and video chats, and where you can connect to a community of other wonderful witches. So head on over to patreon.com witchwave and sign up. It's a fabulous way to get more magic in your life and to support the show. Thanks so much. Welcome back to The Witch Wave. Today, I'm speaking with Heather Green. Oh, Heather, we are now getting into the 70s, the horror witch, and I cannot wait to hear what you have to say about this. So we already touched on Rosemary's Baby. There's a, a film I really love. I know it under the title Season of the Witch, the George Romero movie from 1972, but I know it had a few other titles. I think one was Hungry Wives. Is that right? Yeah, it was originally titled Jack's Wife, and then it changed to, I believe, Hungry Wife Wives was number two, and then it was changed again to Season of the Witch. The film didn't do very well, so they changed the marketing and changed the name. So it, it can be found under three different names. Mm-hmm. I recommend it so highly. What can you tell us about how the witch changes in this time period? 
Well, the key thing to know about this period is this is the 1970s and it was a time when film just was all over the board now because things had opened up. The golden era studio system was gone. The censorship system was gone. We had an influx of new filmmakers, young filmmakers, foreign filmmakers, all kinds of stuff. There was a lot of new and exciting movies coming out. And one of those, one of the things that happened with all of this was the merger in full form of the witch and witchcraft with horror. It, it really hadn't happened prior to this period. There was a little bit, but witches were kept out of horror for the most part prior to this period. So you didn't really have a good horror witch prior to this, a few, but not very many. Wow. So here we have. 1970s and really the full birth of the horror witch and witchcraft being part of the horror experience. And so I know there are many different kinds of witches that show up at this time, but do you think it's fair to say that there was definitely a more sexualized version of the witch too who came out in the 70s? Absolutely. And you see that beginning to happen in the 60s with the nudies. But this is a period of time of sensationalism. A lot of the films, especially the B films, let's let's be honest, hmm. were highly sensationalized. The content that you have you see in these films was not allowed prior to 1968. We had a censorship system in place for much of the 20th century. These kind of stories and these kind of visuals were not permitted. When the censorship system is gone, what I like to say is all hell broke loose. And that's kind of funny <laughs> because all of a sudden you have satanic witchcraft everywhere. And yes, there are a lot of boobies. <laughs> Witch boobies. There are lots of boobies. And, you know, that's really what it amounts to. When we say nudity, there is some other nudity as well, but it's mostly boobies. <laughs> that is what I like to call witch exploitation films, which is a term I coined from what did I take from the era because you had a lot of films that would say, you know, sex exploitation, et cetera. Mm -hmm. This was really witchcraft exploitation. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. And I feel like the witch is this kind of perfect vehicle for pornography. I mean, I hate to say it, but, you know, if we're so afraid of female sexuality and also titillated by it, I mean, who represents that better than the witch who is such a vehicle of desire and desire on her own terms. And isn't that terrifying? And isn't that kind of delicious too? Absolutely. And that's what horror is all about. It's, it's It draws you in and then makes you fear in such a visceral way. And so it's a perfect combination to have the magic, the Satanism, which is what we're talking about here, because that's mostly what witchcraft was in these films, yeah. was some form of Satanism, witchcraft, nudity, ceremonial magic. You had all of this just rolling around, drawing audiences in, but at, at the same time, making them fear. You have a full rape scene in Rosemary's Baby, which is one of the most, most spectacular witch films of our time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The centerpiece of that film was the rape. That's where all of the witches are standing naked around Rosemary as Satan rapes her. Yeah. That's horrifying. And it's crazy. It's the centerpiece of the film. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. And also so much, I think, fear about pregnancy and motherhood and the anxiety that a lot of mothers have to grapple with about, you know, fear of how their child is going to turn out too. 
That's true. That film brings up a lot of different pieces, which is why it's so spectacular. It's similar in level to Carrie. It's not just a simple exploitation film. It hits on a lot of points. It does it beautifully in the visuals. And Rosemary's Baby and Carrie are two of the best witch films of our time, as I said. Yeah. See, I'm so fascinated that you do consider Carrie a witch or a witch film. I also consider her one, but I am interested into how you kind of classified that. And let me also say, when I watched Carrie in preparation for doing some of my own research, it occurred to me that it's kind of a similar plot as one of my favorite books as a child, which is the Roald Dahl book, Matilda. I was like, wait, they can both move things with their mind and they're like having all this chaos happen at school. Obviously, they go in very different directions, but I was then like, is Matilda a witch? Is that why I loved her so much? So yeah, would would love to hear about why you do consider Carrie a witch film. Well, she's called a witch. So I, that's where I drew my line. It is tangentially a witch film. And I included it because the young girl who had developed some kind of psychic power and even not young girl, there are some films that are not that is one of the types of witches that exist. It's the woman most typically who develops some type of magical power has some kind of knowledge beyond what she's supposed to have that then causes havoc on the community because she has this knowledge or power. And so that's sort of one of the archetypes of the Hollywood witch story. And that needed to be developed. And Carrie is normally considered a witch film when people list witch films. And so I put it in there. She is labeled a witch at one point. Her mother calls her a witch. That's right. I think twice. That's right. So I said, okay, if she hadn't been called a witch, probably I might have not used it. But she is called a witch. And there's a lot of themes that run through it that fall into line with all of the other teen witch films. And Carrie is one of the best made teen witch films. So it really worked. Definitely. Okay, so you brought up Teen Witches, and we have to talk about The Craft. This is a a movie that, you know, was popular when I was a teen, and I had complicated feelings about it at that time. And then, as you know, I got to consult on the, I was going to call it a reboot, but I guess we all know now it's a continuation of The Craft called The Craft Legacy, which came out last year. Talk to me a little about the craft and why you think it hit such a nerve in the 1990s. The craft is interesting because it, it it's it kind of like Bewitched in that it it arrived right at the cusp at a changing world in terms of these films. Okay, 1996 was sort of the ending of the Satanic Panic into this girl power movement. Now the girl power movement had already been around and the satanic panic doesn't exactly end in 1996. We're not looking at a straight as as a a divide, but what happens is the sense of girl power. Yeah. The sense that girls can do anything and a girl can be a girl, no matter what they do, whether they're a sporty spice or or, (laughs) (laughs) Or a riot girl, which is the kind of girl that I've found more aspirational than the Spice Girls, just personally speaking, as a, a 90s teen. Exactly. I mean, there was there was a lot going on in music and pop culture that was saying a girl could be anything. So the craft sort of hit right at the cusp of the two when society was starting to relinquish satanic panic, although it's again, it lingered a little bit, but that was sort of the end. And really girl power in pop culture was really 
was coming on strong. And by the 1990s, you see Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Yes. You see Sabrina the Teenage Witch. You see Charmed. And what happens again is magic and witchcraft become an allegory, just like I said earlier, for female power and for gender politics. And see, here you see it in a different light. Here you see it in a different way where where magic is being used as, as a source, as a way to empower young girls. You could be a vampire slayer. You could be a witch. And so you have this witchcraft being not only a path to your empowerment as a teen girl, you also have it as it, an allegory for your personal power, to find your personal power. So that's what we see with Willow in Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Sabrina the Teenage Witch, she's finding her power as a strong, independent girl woman. Okay? Yeah. Yeah. So that's why the craft, I think the craft, that's one of the reasons the craft became so popular. The other reason was, is, and it really ran simultaneously, is the rise of Wicca as a form of witchcraft, as a popular form of witchcraft. Wicca provided a way for people to practice witchcraft without using the word witchcraft and scaring people because we were just coming out of the <laughs> satanic panic. Yeah. So Wicca became a way for young people to have a, a path into magic, to have a path into this power without using a term that had been demonized in the previous time. Yeah. It's so interesting because thinking back to my teen witchery in the 90s, you know, I had no context or idea as to why suddenly there were all these witchcraft books that I could literally get at the mall. You know, it, it's just what I knew to be normal. And I kind of took it for granted that, you know, I could go to Walden Books and get a spell book, right? And listeners know that the movement called Wicca came from, you know, mid 20th century with Gerald Gardner and a lot of those characters, you know, starting kind of in the 50s and then it evolved. But it really did kind of have this resurgence in popularity in the 90s. And I just wonder how many people like me kind of took it for granted that witchcraft was an option and it was a viable thing that you could practice. Like I didn't have to pretend to be a witch, you know, because I had validation because of these books and these films that it was something that you could actually be, that magic wasn't pretend. You could actually, you know, cast spells. So it's really interesting to hear you talk about it, especially in the context of coming out of the satanic panic of the 80s, where, you know, if you were a witch, you definitely didn't want to publicize it. But I really love hearing you contextualize it that way. And it's also getting me thinking more about, too, like, this was, you know, the time of the Anita Hill trial. This is the time of Monica Lewinsky. Like, this is an age in the 90s in which female sexuality was still very much considered dangerous. I mean, hell, it still is. So I, <laughs> I don't know why I'm talking about it in the past tense. But, but it's so interesting to kind of reweave these threads together retrospectively. Yeah, it is. And I think that, you know, the term Wicca, the key thing here is the is the use of the term Wicca versus witchcraft. And and again, I'm speaking in terms of these the films and pop culture, not real practice of witchcraft. Obviously, the term Wicca and witchcraft have been used interchangeably in different ways throughout. So I'm not talking about that. But prior to the 1990s, you don't really hear the word Wicca being used very much. It's mostly witchcraft. You do in films see elements of witchcraft being used absolutely, especially in the seventies, even in, within the context of horror, there's stuff very recognizable in those, but it isn't really until 
the 90s, really with the start of the X-Files, I think some of the first, but then again, into the 90s, you start seeing the word Wicca and then into the 2000s being used more and more and more. And I and I, I see. So it becomes more, ma- the term becomes more mainstream. That's Got the key. It. Because it. the key is here, and I talk about the defanging, so to speak, of witchcraft for mainstream culture. And so Wicca did that. Whether it meant to or not is a whole different story. Of course, there was no pre-planning on a bunch of Wiccans that said, we're going to do this. But it it sort of was a way for culture to accept witchcraft and magic, especially when it was used by young girls. Read my book to see the whole thing because I'm not giving the detail here, but that's one of the things that Wicca did. Wicca was able to, the term itself was able to find its way into pop culture, allowing more and more people access to it. Oh, look, Wicca, that's magic. You know, you could see that, like you said, on the shelves. Now you and I, as you pointed out earlier, grew up in New Jersey and around New York City where it was much easier to find this stuff. We were in a world where it was easy to find, you know, the Wiccan books and everything like that, to watch the movies without any recourse. I'm sure there were people in other parts of the country who did not have that same luxury. My first book, I, and just anecdotally, my first book was Buckland's Big Blue Book. And um, I bought it at a Barnes and Noble, got on the A train and went uptown and to where my parents lived in their apartment and just sat there on their couch reading the book. And there was no (laughs) <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I got We're, no, no looks, no nothing. Pushback. It was just like, and how lucky are we? I know a lot of listeners even today don't have that privilege. So we're very, Absolutely. very lucky. Yes. And so the craft and then the, the movies that followed after served a lot of purposes. They were able to using, again, the term Wicca for the most part uh, in place of witchcraft allowed people to access witchcraft as power to access this form of spirituality, whether it was religion or not. Um, it also played a role in the girl power movement, giving young girls, teens, access to their own personal power, saying you can be anything. So it fit in. It was like perfect timing, you know? Absolutely. Well, listen, Heather, we're coming up on time, and it's clear to me that we have so much else to talk about. So I would love if we could do a part two conversation about this soon. Because I need to hear everything about where we're at now and where we're going. But this has been such an incredible, incredible ride on your cinematic broomstick. Thank you so much for doing this with me. It's been such a joy. It has been. I'm, I'm more than happy to come back. I can talk about witches and movies for, for hours and hours, as I'm sure you can. So just let me know and I would be happy. And this has been absolutely fun and wonderful to revisit all these concepts with you. Back at you. And Heather, final question for you. Where can people find you and your writing? And of course, what is the best way that they can pick up a copy of Lights, Camera, Witchcraft? Well, I'm on Twitter at Miraselena01. And I am, I do have a Facebook page, Heather Green Writes, and a website, heathergreenwrites.net. Um, and that's green, find- green with an E at the end. Yes. Thank you. Green with an E. <laughs> and I am on Instagram, but I'm not really good at it. So you can find me there. <laughs> I'm more regular on Twitter. You can find the book. The book is actually released October 8th, just in time for Halloween movie watching. Yes. You can find it at Barnes and Noble, Llewellyn.com, Amazon.com, all the places. What's really great, and I want to note to everybody, is that when you read the book, each chapter has a list of films for the period of time. So I always recommend to people while you're reading, watch the movies, 
as you go. It makes it so much more fun. Oh, awesome. 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 Heather, thank you so much. I can't wait to keep talking to you and we're going to do that soon. You take good care. Thank you. You too. That's it for the show. Thank you again to Heather Green for being a human encyclopedia of enchantment. Do you have questions, feedback, need some witchly advice, or just want to share something magical that happened to you recently? Drop us an email at witchwavepodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you, and you just might make it on the Witchwire. The Witchwave is a phantasmophile production written and produced by me, Pam Grossman. This episode was recorded and edited by Josh Wilcox and myself. Our theme music is the song Hand and I by Lycanthia. Special thanks go to Matt Freeman, Laura Antal, and Cece Pascal. You can check out information about this and other episodes on our website and now by Witchwave merch at witchwavepodcast.com. Please subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app and give us lots of sparkly stars. It really, truly makes a difference and helps other people find the show. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at WitchWavePod. And you can check out my witch emoji for iPhone by going to witchemoji.com or downloading it in the App Store. Please consider pre-ordering my book, Witchcraft, or picking up my book, Waking the Witch, which is available everywhere now. And if you want more Witchwave or you would just like to support the show, please join us over on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash witchwave. Thank you so much for listening. Witches are the future. I'll catch you next time on The Witchwave.